We are um, continuing, although we are almost done, um, with our uh, journey through the New Testament in the first 90 days of the year. Um, this is the last, uh, this week starting is the last week. Um, and so uh, I would encourage you, if you, have, um, if you have not joined us with this, I would encourage you the next time we do a, a reading plan together to, to join us, if you would be interested um, I mean, we can still make copies of uh, the 90 days through the New Testament reading plan available uh, to you. But we are almost done, which means that it has been almost three months um, in the new year. Um, that is, I believe, the way math works. As, uh, as my accountant will tell you, I'm not terribly good at math. Very thankful that he is. But, um, but I do think that three months is 90 days. We're going to be in uh, 1 Peter today. Uh, I love the book of 1 Peter. Um, I feel like it's one of those New Testament books that often gets over, overlooked. We, we, spend time with, uh, um, we spend time with Paul in, in, in Romans and in Corinthians. We spend time with the author of Hebrews in that book. Um, but uh, we don't spend a lot of time with Peter in his epistles. But I, I love the epistle, the epistle of 1 Peter. We're going to be in 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 1. We're going to be starting with verse 17, reading through verse 21. Um, if you want to turn there and turn there, if you need a Bible, grab one of those uh, black hardback Bibles in front of you. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear God, you are our hope. You are our salvation. And so, God, as we sojourn as strangers in this world, I pray that we would grow to be more like you. I pray that we would be exiles, but that we would be exiles of your blood. And so, God, as we open your word and turn to it this morning to study it, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. If, if I start leaning a little bit this morning, it's just because we're listing 
a little bit in that direction. I, I never thought that this would be a congregation that would lean to the left. As we turn to Scripture this morning, we, we, read, we read these words from Peter. And, and we're reminded, or we need to be reminded, who Peter is writing to. If, if we go back to the very beginning of, of Peter, 1 Peter, we, we see that he is writing it to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad. In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, so these are, are people to whom Peter is writing, members of the church who, who are not living in Judea. They're not living in Jerusalem. They are those who are scattered, those who are exiles, living as exiles. That's to whom Peter is writing. This is, this is going to be a, 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 a letter that's, that's passed around. This is not a letter like 1st or 2nd Corinthians to a specific Church, this is to a group of believers, a group of churches. And so it's sort of more generalized advice than what you find in a lot of Paul's epistles that are these very narrow, targeted epistles to a particular church dealing with particular issues. And so Peter is writing. Peter, Peter, just so that we're clear, this is Peter, Simon Peter. This is, this, is, this is Peter who was one of the first to follow Jesus. This is, this is Peter who was so quick on the night that Jesus was on trial to deny him after he had just so boldly said that he never would. It's one of those things I'm always cautious to, to say things that I would never do this or never do that because I am sure that when Peter sat there at the Last Supper across the table from Jesus, and he said, well, I'd never do that. I know he meant it. And yet, within 12 hours, he does the exact thing that he says that he would never do. This is Peter, who's a, who's a leader in the early church. This is Peter, who on more than one occasion goes toe-to-toe with Paul over their understanding of the gospel. So Peter is writing to these churches, and, and, and he's writing to churches who, who are in need of hope. And, and a significant chunk, a significant theme of 1 Peter is hope. And so as, he, as he's writing, as we, as we jump into where we started today, we see the first thing that he says here is, is if you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work. Peter is, is reminding those to whom he is writing that the one to whom they appeal is not some other that is so far above and removed from them that they are not capable of having relationship with him. This is not a... a holy, transcendent God. This is is a God that we can and are instructed to call Father. 
You know, there was, there was a, a lot running around in the world at the time and, and, and since then about the, this idea that, 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 that the, the one who was holy, the one who was divine, that this, this God was, was so other, so perfect, so holy, so transcendent that, that we cannot approach him in any way. This was one of the early objections, honestly, to the incarnation of Christ. That, that why would God, a God so holy, so perfect, why would God pollute himself by becoming one of us? This is one of the beautiful things of our faith, is that both of these things are true, that he is perfect and holy and to be high and lifted up, to have a name above every other name, all of those things, and yet he also comes. Becomes one of us. Lives a human life with all of its pain and trouble and rainstorms. And it's because of that, right, that we're able to approach God as his children. It's because that the Son comes that we become children, that we become adopted, grafted into his family. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, I don't know if any of you have ever, ever seen the comment or heard the comment from somebody, well, only God can judge me. Yes. And that should scare you. Yes. And you don't want that. Trust me, you would much rather me judge you. Because I know how I've messed up. But the Father is to be this impartial, perfect judge. But then Peter reminds us, okay, yes, but remember, he's still the Father. And God wants his kids to look like him. There's an ongoing debate as to whether or not Wesley finally looks more like Audrey than Jamie does because Jamie doesn't at all, right? I think we can all acknowledge that, for better or for worse, mostly for worse, he looks like me. But, but when you have kids, right, you want them to, to be interested in the things that you're interested in. You want them to, to conduct themselves the way that you want them to conduct. Sometimes it's do what I say and not what I do, right? Because none of us are perfect, but but we want our kids to be formed like us. We want our kids to, to act like us and talk like us and think like us, right? We, there's, there's a certain aspect of, of us passing on who we are through our children. And so a holy and perfect God, a God of holiness, expects his children to be children of holiness, to conduct ourselves in reverence is how Peter phrases it. 
God expects his children to, to look like him. And part of that means that if we're going to look like him, we're not going to look like the world. Part of that means that we are going to look strange to the world around us. One of the aspects of, for so long, Christianity having a positive place in the world and in the culture was that the culture and the church looked a lot like each other. But as the church begins to inhabit more and more and more a, a negative space in the broader culture, the church and the culture are going to begin to look more and more different. And one of the things that we have to get comfortable with is we have to get comfortable being weird and being strange and not looking like everybody else. You know, from the, from the time we're little, we want to look like everybody else, right? From the time that we're little, we want to fit in. But the truth is, we're exiles. We're strangers. We're always going to be a little different. We're always going to be a little off. We're always going to, going to not quite fit in. And in some times, and in some places, we're going to really not fit in. And so, so we're, going to be, we're going to be strangers. We're going to be exiles. You know, this, this image of the exile is so important in the Bible. And there's, the, there's the exile to Babylon, right, that we know about. But even prior to that, there's, there's, a, there's a, the, 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 the type, is the, the theological language we might use. The, the initial example of this is the, the exile, the exodus of God's people in Egypt and in their exodus out of it. They are strangers in Egypt. They are exiled to Egypt. They don't fit in in Egypt, right? And in the process, they are enslaved. And so the first great image we have of God's people is God liberating his people out of Egypt into a wilderness for 40 years. And then God brings them into the promised land and they establish Israel and then they want a king and in a couple of weeks we're going to jump into First and Second Samuel and we'll get all of that about why they end up with a king, an earthly king, when God had not wanted to give them one. And then eventually the kingdom splits and the northern kingdom is eventually carried off by Assyria and the southern kingdom eventually in exile in Babylon. But, but what is God in both the story of the Exodus, this exile in the wilderness, and, and the story of the exile to Babylon, what does God do with this exile? What's the purpose of these times? It is to form God's people more in his image. The reason that they have to be in the wilderness for 40 years is because they don't trust God. Because God tells them to go in and so they send the spies in, and only two spies come back and say, we can do it, Caleb and Joshua. And everybody else says, no, the people are 8,000 feet tall. We'll never be able to do it. And they don't trust God. And so God, God sends them back into the wilderness for 40 years so that they can learn to trust him. So that they can learn 
that their survival is not dependent on what they do and their strength. Their survival is dependent on God. And when we fast forward to the exile, why? What's the purpose of the exile? God's very clear that God sends his people into exile because they have yet again forgotten to rely on him. They've engaged in all forms of idolatry. They've brought in all of this foreign, outside stuff into Israel, into Judah, into their worship. They have Asherah poles up, and they have temples and altars to, to other gods, and they've forgotten who it is that brought them out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. And so God sends them into exile for a reason, for a purpose, so they can grow. So they can grow in their faith, so they can grow in their relationship with him. And so as Peter uses this image of the church as being in exiles, it should not upset us. And as we perhaps feel more and more and more like strangers in our own land, it should not upset us. We should be reminded of what God does with these periods. That God uses these periods to strengthen our faith. To remind us to trust in Him. If you pay attention to the, the discourse and the conversation out there, I fear that there are a lot of Christian and even Christian leaders and pastors who are more confident in the power of the state than they are confident in the power of Christ. That we have Christian leaders who are more concerned about who sits in which political office than they are concerned about whether or not the people of God are faithful to what God has called them to do. You want to know why we're in exile? Because we haven't learned the lesson yet. And it's okay. Because they didn't really learn it in the wilderness. And they didn't really learn it in Babylon. And we're not really going to learn it until the trumpet sounds and the new heaven and the new earth comes. It's okay. But we should at least try to learn the lesson, right? When the people leave Egypt and they head out into the Exodus, do you remember why? Do you remember why they're saved? remember the last plague? The angel of death visits Egypt. And God's people are under the blood of the Lamb. It's on the doorposts of their houses. And so the angel of death passes over them. They are Exiles of blood. They are exiled out of Egypt into the wilderness because of the blood of the Lamb that has spared them from the angel of death. And so here, Peter reminds us that, that our salvation, that our redemption comes not 
because we have done anything. Not because we've elected certain people, not because we've contributed a certain amount of money, not because we've done certain good works. Peter says nothing can buy your redemption, not even silver and gold. Nothing can buy your redemption. No work of our hand can do it. Only the precious blood of Christ. Only the precious blood of the Lamb is capable of redeeming us. You know, we use this word a lot, redemption or redeemed. And it's one of those words that we've used so much that we've almost churchified it to the point that we forget what it really means. To to be redeemed is to be set free. If If you were redeemed out of slavery, it meant that someone paid the price for you and set you free. There's also a story in the Old Testament, the story of Ruth. Do you remember who one of the characters in that story is? It's the kinsman redeemer. The the closest living male relative who had a responsibility to take care of these indigent women. And what happens in the story of Ruth? Remember? The kinsman redeemer doesn't want anything to do with them. And so they go to Boaz, who's also a relative, but, but not the closest. And Boaz assumes the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer, and he, he redeems Naomi and Ruth out of their poverty. He sets them free from the status that they were in. Redemption, to be set free, to be brought from a lowly estate into a higher estate, to be brought and purchased out of slavery. Israel was redeemed out of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb and the work of God. They were set free. I'm almost convinced that I have not said anything heretical. I'm pretty sure the thunder is just thunder, all right? But they're brought out of, they're brought out of Egypt because of the work of God through the blood of the Lamb. They are redeemed. Just as we are redeemed by the work of God through the blood of the Lamb. We get to verse 20. He, meaning Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. I think sometimes we do this thing, not on purpose, I don't think, but where we think, well, Jesus must have been God's plan B. Or, or, or really, Jesus must have been God's plan C, right? 
Because plan A was for Adam and Eve to stay in the garden, and that didn't work out. And then so plan B was for the law, and that didn't work out. So, so Christ, is, Christ is plan C. Right? It's sort of the way we think about it. And I don't know that even necessarily that we verbalize it. Because even when you verbalize it, it sounds a little, a little wonky, right? But I, I think that's what we do sometimes. We think about it that way. But brothers and sisters, Christ wasn't God's plan B, plan C, plan D, plan F, plan Z. Christ was, from the very, before the very foundations of the world, plan A. Christ was the, the point. Before the Lord said, let there be light, and there was light, the work of Christ was foreknown. Before the foundation of the world, the work of Christ was known. When, when the Spirit of God hovered above the waters and it was formless, the work of Christ was foreknown. Before God raised dust and shaped it into man, the work of Christ was foreknown. Before Adam and Eve ever met a serpent, the work of Christ was foreknown. And it was through him, through Christ, that we believe in God. It's by Christ, because of Christ, because of his work that we believe in God. And let's think about this for a second. How does that work? If we believe because of Christ, well, what about all those before Christ was born? If the work of Christ was foreknown from before the foundations of the earth, Abraham knew God because of Christ and because of Christ's work. In fact, if we, if we read in the New Testament, if we read in Romans, we read Paul say that Abraham was saved not because of Abraham. Abraham was saved because of his faith in Christ. How it works 1,500 years earlier, I don't know. What I know is the work of Christ was foreknown from before the foundations of the earth. And Abraham was saved by faith in Christ. David was saved by faith in Christ. When we read in Hebrews of the Old Testament saints, the author of Hebrews tells us they are there because of their faith in Christ. We know God. We believe in God because of the grace of Christ. Well, what has God done? This God that we believe in, what has he done? He has raised Christ from the dead and given him glory. In the midst of all of the insecurities, in the midst of all of the junk, in the midst of the storms, we know that God raised Christ from the dead and glorified him, and that, Peter tells us, that is our hope. My hope is built 
on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust. Anyway, whatever. But lean wholly on Jesus' name. Try and do things from memory, and it doesn't work out all the time. The blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, the uncomfortable truth is, is that the church is now, and in fact the church always has been, in exile. From the moment that the church was bought by the blood of Christ, the church has been in exile. And until the new heavens and the new earth comes, we will be in exile. But our hope, our hope is in Christ. Our hope is not in anything that we can do with our hands, anything that our money can buy, any vote that we can cast, any nasty letter to the editor that we can write. Our hope is in Christ. Yes, we are in exile. And it's not a great place to be, it feels like. But we're in exile because we've been bought by the blood. We're, we are exiles of blood. Not exiles of fortune. Not exiles of chance. Not exiles of anything other than the precious blood of Christ. That is my faith and hope. I hope it is your faith and hope. I pray that it is your faith and hope. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be the old rugged cross.